I'm Satya Doyle-Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. All of our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. You want to start us off on where we were from last week and what we're up to this week? Yeah, well, I would just observe, I think all of us are, are noticing that our relationship to time is quite a lot different. I was thinking, wasn't last Sunday just yesterday? <laughs> and it's because we're, we're not in Kronos time anymore. We're, we're in Kairos time. The opportunity of this time is to I think, you know, to find the meaning in the time and when we're not held by the structures of chronology, our sense of time shifts and our attention shifts and that, so we're all experiencing that kind of slipstream, like where does the time go? And in in the old sense of that, as if time was something that you wrestle. I'm very animated by this because of my little caterpillar into butterfly project. I just... I'm in the process of, I just nurtured caterpillars into chrysalids and I just moved the chrysalids into the tent from which they're going to hatch and be painted lady butterflies. So I'm very, very taken these days with the idea of life being contained as a prelude to life being opened back up. And that's got its own time frame. So anyway, I'll start with that, that that we're Kairos time, Kairos, that seizing the moment rather than organizing everything towards a purpose. So I'm, for, for my part as an introduction, I'm just going to briefly recapitulate where we, where we are, the castle in the forest, in which Jung, in a castle and in a dark forest, in an old man's scholarly library, finds himself spending the night and encounters what is appalling to him and ironic, that the patriarchal, that the old man is protecting a beautiful pale daughter and that Jung finds himself against his conscious or cultural expectations having to come to terms with her reality. And in their dialogue, in the end, she says to him, do you love me? And he says, by God, I love you, but unfortunately, I am already married. And she says, so you see, even banal reality is a redeemer. I thank you, dear friend, and I bring you greetings from Salome. With these words, her shape dissolves into darkness. Dim moonlight penetrates the room, and where she stood, something shadowy lies, a profusion of red roses. So Satya and I, in our conversations about this, since this is a pivotal part of his journey and a pivotal part of the the book itself, thought that this deserved a beat or two more about this person 
coming to terms through engagement of psyche with his wholeness. We'll continue that, but what it woke up for me was the very real context in which this was happening, which was not only Europe pre in World War I. I mean, the Battle of the Marne is being shaped, but his in, intense symbiotic alchemical relationships with two uh, very important women in his life, that not only is he encountering the old man's pale maiden in his psyche, but he is in a very profound dance with two very real women. So we'll look at, we wanted to look at that today. Thanks, Carol, so much for that setup. The critical gist of all this is this, the exploration of Jung into his own psyche to heal his own patriarchal attitude and therefore the patriarchal attitude of the collective. So I want to say, to really emphasize this, that we are not talking about every person's journey here. Jung says over and over, this is my story, this is my journey, this is my truth. And I'm learning from that personally. I think we're all learning from that. But it's really, for me, kind of understanding the male psyche as as he's doing some profound healing. I mean, I think for all of us, gender is such a tender place to be exploring right now. And so I want to say this very clearly at the outset of things. I don't have a perspective of gender as binary. And we're going to kind of talk about this because it's very much how Jung gets into it. But I think he was wrong on that point. And I think he was trying to shove his psychology into too fine a box. So what Jung does here is he dives into his own psyche and then he creates a binary that's too fixed. And it's been frustrating the Jungian world since that point. You know, it's a point of contention in the Jungian world and has been. So on page 226 and 227, I'm going to read two paragraphs that I think sets this up both in the brilliance of what he's doing and then in the overly binary way that he gets into it. So he's referring back to this whole story that we read last week and are setting up the castle in the forest. And he says, in the adventure, I experienced what I had witnessed in the Mysterium. What I saw in the Mysterium as Salome and Elijah became in life the old scholar and his pale locked up daughter. What I live is a distorted likeness of the Mysterium. Following the romantic way, I reached the awkwardness and ordinariness of life, where I run out of thoughts and almost forget myself. What I formerly loved, I must now experience as feeble and wasted, and what I formerly derided, I had to envy as towering and helplessly crave. I accepted the absurdity of this adventure. No sooner had this happened than I also saw how the maiden transformed herself and signified an autonomous meaning. One inquires into the desire of the ridiculous and that is enough for it to change. So what I hear in that in our own modern language is Jung confronting his own toxic masculinity and seeing what happens to the feminine externally when he does that. So I'll read the next paragraph and then I'm going to read a few other things to settle this up. So Jung says, what about masculinity? Do you know how much femininity man lacks for completeness? Do you know how much masculinity woman lacks for completeness? You seek the feminine in women and the masculine in men. And thus, there are always only men and women. But where are people? 
you, man, should not seek the feminine in women, but seek and recognize it in yourself as you possess it from the beginning. It pleases you, however, to play at manliness because it travels on a well-worn track. You, woman, should not seek the masculine in men, but assume the masculine in yourself since you possess it from the beginning. But it amuses you and is easy to play at femininity. Consequently, man despises you because he despises his femininity. But humankind is masculine and feminine, not just man or woman. You can hardly say of your soul what sex it is, but if you pay close attention, you will see that the most masculine man has a feminine soul and the most feminine woman has a masculine soul. The more manly you are, the more remote from you is what woman really is, since the feminine in yourself is alien and contemptuous. I feel like every line there, we could all, if we're doing a gender study course or Jungian exploration, we could, we could parse every single line there. And, and I have this rule, I may have mentioned in previous salons, but the 80-20 rule for me with reading Jung's work, um, you know, is that 20% feels forced, wrong, racist, sexist, awkward, confusing. And I really try to parse that out, but not throw the baby out with the bathwater. So in this, you can feel him, and we've spoken about this again, but I want to put a fine point on it because it, it, it gets so complicated in the way we understand gender now that for Jung, men had feminine souls and women had masculine souls. And the, the kind of full understanding that we all are born from women's bodies and are raised, you know, theoretically, but, you know, at women's breasts, et cetera, and then we're all born into patriarchy, that that, that is no longer really a binary. It's a kind of 100% for all of us, right? So it gets... It gets confusing then when he tries to just separate it. So for me, and in all of this, we are all seeking androgynous psychology and wholeness. You know, we all have masculine and feminine. We all need to detox from patriarchy, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity or any of those things. There's a way in which we're all working this stuff constantly. And by doing so, we heal society. <laughs> So, Carol, I'm going to pause because I have a couple things I want to read that really kind of, for me, draw out this story of the castle in the forest. But I've been talking already a long time. So what do you think over there? No, keep reading. Keep, keep going. Reading. Yeah. All right. So there's kind of three main things that I want to just pull in here. One, this is from Jung's Collected Works number seven. It's two essays on analytical psychology. And it's just a very short piece here. He really opens it up a qu quite a bit, but I talk about this as the guru's wife. He's speaking about, again, what feels to me such a profoundly important recognition. And he wrote this around the time of the Red Book, the same period in the early 1900s, or, you know, 1916 or so. He said, I, I once made the acquaintance of a very venerable pers persona. What's that word? Person pers Personage. Yeah, that word. Okay. So that guy, he, he met this person, right? He said, one can easily call him a saint. I stalked around him for three whole days, but never a mortal failing did I find in him. My feeling of inferiority grew ominous, and I was beginning to think seriously of how I might better myself. You know, he's observing this saint and starting to develop a significant inferiority complex. He says, then on the fourth day, his wife came to consult me. Well, nothing of the sort has ever happened to me since. 
But this I did learn, that any man who becomes one with his persona, you know, his very saintly, masculine, important persona, can cheerfully let all disturbances manifest themselves through his wife without her noticing it. So she pays for her self-sacrifice with a bad neurosis. So Jung speaking to identity, projective identification. identification. Yeah, so exactly. So, so I want to name this word. This is a concept in the realm of projection, right? But the term projective identification. Jung understood in this profound way because he had done this work. You can see the castle in the forest. This young woman who comes up to his bedroom in this vision and demands that he witness her is saying, stop projecting your own weakness onto the women in the world. Stop projecting your own neurosis onto the women in the world and calling it good. You separate this neurosis outside of yourself. You wash your hands of it and you don't think of it anymore. And, you know, he, he's calling men out in a very profound way in society. And he's also inviting women to stop participating in the charade in patriarchy that women lose their minds women go crazy women feel disturbed right and men keep climbing ladders and rolling their eyes about the wife right okay this is another thing i want to read so i was also reading this novel um ursula k Le Guin, brilliant oregon novelist we spoke about her last week i think this novel the dispossessed so it's another example. We see it everywhere, but this just showed up for me in a really beautiful way this last couple of weeks. Um, there is a male man from the moon in this novel who comes from a society where gender is entirely equal. And he's traveling to the kind of original planet where his people came from hundreds or thousands of years ago. And on this planet, women are completely hidden away and the men have all the power and all the positions and all the professional titles and the education and all that. And he's confused. He's wondering, where did the women go? You know, they say, oh, well, women don't really, you know, they don't really know stuff or think very well. And, you know, he said, but the greatest scholar of all time that we all speak to all the time is a woman. And they sort of, oh, well, that was a really long time ago. You know, so there's this scholar that everyone speaks to. Um, his name is Shevek. So he says, Shevek saw when he when he asked the men about this that he had touched in these men an impersonal animosity that went very deep. Apparently, they contained a woman, a suppressed, silenced, bestialized woman, a fury in a cage. He had no right to tease them. They knew no relation but possession. They were possessed. So, you know, I, I highly doubt that Ursula read the Red Book uh, because it wasn't published at the time, you know, but she had a deep understanding of this as we have seen throughout philosophy, psychology for the ages. But that men who cannot be in deep relationship with the feminine externally have no relationship with their deep feminine internally. And so that gets projected externally, which then drives the world mad right? So again, for me, this is fundamentally a social issue. We are all wrestling with this, but we're seeing this as Jung's understanding in a very profound way of a social issue. The last thing, as I put this kind of, for me, all in context, is I mentioned last week 
this brilliant woman, Ai Jen Pu, she's the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And she's just a stunning uh, uh, advocate of domestic workers nationally and an understanding, has a really brilliant understanding, you know, of what happens in a society when we value the white masculine fundamentally and the values of the white masculine and then shove psychologically everything else out into the shadows. So she has a TED talk and I'm just going to quote from this here. She says, you see, the cultural devaluing of domestic work is a reflection of a hierarchy of human value that defines everything in our world as a hierarchy that values the lives and contributions of some groups of people over others based on race and gender, class, immigration status, any number of categories. And that hierarchy of human value requires stories about those groups of people in order to sustain itself. So these stories have seeped deep into our cult culture about how some people are less intelligent, some people are less intuitive, some people are weaker by extension and less trustworthy and less valuable and ultimately less human. That's pretty much where, you know, I, I want to kind of just end this, but this feeling that as we get into Jung's story of the castle in the forest, we are seeing him come face to face with the fact that if we value intellect, scholarship, the masculine, you know, the kind of brilliance, the guru, the, the, the elderly, older, wise man, everything else gets shoved into the shadows. And that is not just an issue for that man. It is an issue for the ways that everyone else has to deal with those projections. That projective identification in the end drives all of us crazy, drives the whole world mad. And we are left with profound inequities and insanities. And, you know, this world that now, this feeling potentially in our quarantine with each other, we're hoping, I think, to rectify on the other side that we are not, as we see with essential workers right now with COVID, everything that's happening, we are not saying, well, finally, now we value you. Now we clap for you at 7 p.m. You know, now we honor you that you exist because we are still underpaying you. You still don't have immigration rights. You still don't know where your children are. All these things, now we value them, you know. But what can we possibly do at the end of all this so that there's a d different sense of equity and, and we're all doing our own work in the process. That is my setup for this morning. Well, that's a hard act to follow. <laughs> I had to get it all off my chest, Carol. Well, I appreciate you. Listening. No, you know, it, it's what we're doing, you know, is making our way through it. And I, I don't mean to make, everything that you've laid out smaller by coming back to Jung and to women, but it's coming back to us. You know, that the point that you're making is where does that, where, what has brought us to this moment? What are, what personally has brought us to this moment and what collectively has brought us to this moment. And so for me, I want to talk about a relational world instead of a performative world. And that's one of the reasons that I'm interested in looking at the relationship that Jung had with his wife, Emma, and his colleague, Tony Wolf. And 
mm-hmm. Carol, just to, you know, just to connect this, I think you're, we know, and we spoke about this originally, but just this feeling of how does Jung learn and wrestle with the fact that this is going on in society, right? He's in these very complicated relationships with his wife and his former patient, student, mistress, teacher, Tony. So he's learning this in this whole dance in his personal world. And so we're going to dive into the complexity of that. It's not entirely pretty, right? And I'm grateful for you taking us there, Carol. All right. Well, so what I'll do is I'm going to talk a little bit about an astrological look at these people from my particular, my personal perspective. Then I would really like to come back to you and have you talk a little bit about their biographies because you have a, a, a much better sense of the, of the biography. I certainly know them the way I know them from looking at their horoscopes and then we'll come back and look at the horoscopes and at the alchemy of these three people changing something. So what got me thinking about the relationship with Emma and Tony was this phrase, by God, I love you, but unfortunately, I am already married. And I thought, that sounds like a guy wrestling with his conscience. And that's when I ask you, where was he personally in all of this? The question of, of joy and pleasure and lust. And, and Anne, we're going to ask you to talk a little bit about the German translations that you've done around this at the, towards the end. But I, um, it woke up in me my memory that when I got married and I got, I was very happily married. I was, I, I loved my husband and we had not been married very long. And I realized that I thought that marriage was like hairspray. I, I said that to Lynn Bell, the astrologer in Paris, Lynn Bell. She said, "Oh, you mean hairspray?" <laughs> and. I realized that I somehow I thought that the cultural container marriage would somehow make safe or bring to harbor my own erotic nature and my own relational nature. So the first time I fell really hard for someone else in the middle of being very happily married and being very well married was a shock to me. What was I going to do about this man? What was this that had announced itself to me that, that I had noticed, that it had noticed me, and what was my responsibility towards it? So I thought of that when I read this phrase. What was happening with him personally? Because I understood it so well in the way that all of us understand the complexity of our relational lives. So it led me to their horoscopes because I think that the horoscopes are a portal or a frame to understand the dynamics of how a person holds life, not some rigid identity, but, but how are we, how do we arrive here and begin to adapt ourselves and integrate ourselves into a very complex, beautiful living, you know, ecosystem. So I want to tell two stories about my change in point of view as an astrologer to come around to Jung and Emma and Tony. And the first is, the first time I was in China, I went as an astrologer with a group of Chinese medical people. I was asked at the end of it to do the horoscope of Shifu, who was the Jinjin Jigong holder of 
a particular lineage of philosophy, metaphysics, and physicality. And it was translated, and he listened and nodded his head. And, and then at the end, he said, through our translator, that was very accurate, but it was only about me. And it washed over me that my Western point of view about the horoscope as personality and identity instead of matrix of connections and relationships it was okay as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. And it forever changed my understanding of how to come to another person in the creation of a dialogue that would open up between that person and me what they're developing, not as some container, but as some way of being in the world. About the same time, I had a sequence of, of clients, male and female, who had Venus in Pisces and Venus in Scorpio, which in the astrological language, Venus will reductively, we'll call it the feminine, pleasure and beauty and relationship. In astrological, in the astrological canon, the placement of Venus in the sign Pisces is considered to be in the sign of its exaltation, which is from a certain frame of work, the feminine as profound and as powerful, expressive, loving, ardent, empathic, as it's possible to be, and Venus in Scorpio as a negative, that a woman who cannot be expressive and expansive and who will have a certain kind of insistence or point of view about her desire and her love nature. But what I saw that the people who were holding Venus in Pisces and expressing it in their nature, loving, empathic people, were systematically abused. And that the people who were holding Venus and Scorpio had the capacity to draw a boundary and a kind of self-insistence for themselves. And I thought then, why is Venus considered to be exalted in this language? And I thought, because this language was written by men for kings. And that I am a carrier of a, of a language and a tradition I revere and love and I feel it has as a symbolic system of watching flows of energy and the embodiment and expression of them doesn't get much better than this, all topologies, including psychology. And, but I began to think, not it isn't so simple as just changing the language that in work I do with living people, the culture has shaped expectations for masculine and feminine behavior in which the astrological world is as vulnerable and shaped by these prejudices around behavior as any other language. So that now when I come and have, this, is, this has been the last 20 years of what is the, what is, how to, do we find our wholeness as people, both in terms of finding a place to stand and being in relationship, to both be identified and distinct and hold ourselves. James Hillman talks about the epistrophe, the act of being ourselves to give back up to source through polishing ourselves, through burnishing ourselves. How do we do that and how to be, but how is the dynamic of relationship changing that and how will we do that? How will we both be who we are and be relational? That's pretty reductive, but 
it's the frame that I want to put on looking at the horoscopes of these three people, because for me, it's not just so simple as some sort of cultural judgment about this man and his relationship with his wife and, and his colleague and the eroticism of it, the rules and the culture of it. But how were they developing their own complex natures as an alchemical process with each other? And that it's really one of the great gifts of the astrological language, which is how do we bring ourselves to a moment and then open ourselves up to not just to keep saying I'm this way and that's because I'm a hmm but how do we keep relationally, not just have an identity in a container which is performed, but relationally how do we grow and change, not just in relationship to other human beings, but in relationship to trees and painted butterflies and you know the, the larger system. So with that, I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the biographies of these people, how fascinating and interesting and compelling they are and have been to so many people and the kind of judgments and projections that have been brought to them. And then I'll come back and talk about a, a bit about the astrology and then we'll open it up for questions. I will do my best, but Carol, don't hesitate to jump in. I'm just going to do this very, very briefly because I want there to be time for the astrology. So Jung, Jung met his wife, when she was 14, but he, and he had a voice in his head that said, she, she will be my wife. But it wasn't, I think, eight years later or something that they actually met and started a relationship. She is, was the heir to uh, an extraordinary fortune and was one of the richest women in the world and made Jung one of the richest men in Europe, but, you know, arguably at that point, the world as well. So they were extraordinarily wealthy and he was very much, you know, they lived a very patriarchal household, um, Swiss patriarchy. She knew that her role was to be the wife and the mother and she did it admirably and she did it stoically for a very long time. She, by all accounts, held the container for Jung's work. I mean, she held the home he began making money without question and he developed a, you know, obviously very um, profitable and important career, but you know, there's no question to anyone and certainly wasn't a question to Jung that his wife, Emma, you know, really gave him a tremendous foundation for that. But she was in her character, very stoic and she played that role very well as the Swiss wife. Um, she raised her children to be well-mannered and, not to bother their father. And he participated in that. So there's all sort of a lot of stories about Jung. He was part of the family, but he was sort of a scheduled part of the family. Um, he wasn't cruel or mean or anything. I don't, I don't think we really hear stories about that, but he was distant. You know, he wasn't deeply engaged in his children's lives. And he was very lost in thought. I mean, so again, I think you can really see his self-criticism with this story of the castle in the forest of this man who's lost in his own world. He's really aware of himself in that form. Tony Wolf was this brilliant young woman who, you know, as you read her story, you can really feel this sense of being the, the sister also of a wealthy family. I think there were three sisters and she just kind of couldn't, imagine herself getting married. It wasn't part of her own story. She couldn't get there. Um, she really wanted an excellent education and was forced to kind of piece it together because she was born female, right? Um, and wasn't going to be sent to the best universities and all of that. So 
So Tony found her way kind of really trying to study things and was sent to Jung as a consult for being a neurotic young woman. And that she was kind of angry and frustrated and stifled and, and went to see him as a young, I think she was 20 years old um, for consultation. And Jung was really impressed with her as a client and they worked together for a couple of years. I think he wrote to Freud about her and his, how impressed he was with her knowledge of mythology and poetry and all these things. And then I think they sort of became friends or, you know, developed more of a scholarly relationship. And it's important to say that the history on this is very confusing and complicated because when Jung passed away, he burned all of his correspondence with Tony and the records are very hard to really fully understand. But the long story of it is that they developed an affair. They developed a psychological and intimate and sexual relationship. And she kind of became his second wife for decades. She was part of his life and Emma was part of his life, obviously as his wife. The two of them, Emma and Tony, developed scholarship together over time. They both became analysts. It was totally not perfect, but it was also not entirely in the shadows. The whole kind of city knew that it was happening, you know, so this dance was happening all the time. I'll pause there, but I mean, it just opens up and opens up. I guess the last thing I'll say is I've always conceived of Tony a bit as the Mary Magdalene of Jung's story. She, you know, she is this brilliant woman who was by his side through all of his work and arguably had a tremendous influence on his work. So, you know, her intuitive capacity to be with Psyche had a tremendous influence on his work. But as the canon has been built... And as the family has shaped the story for their own sense of um, respect and, and love of Emma, Tony has kind of gone to the shadows historically. And so that's kind of this Mary Magdalene sense is she was at Jung's, you know, um, side through all of this. But in the story of it, Emma gets pushed. I'm sorry, Tony really gets pushed to the back. So that's the small biographical setup. Thank you. Thank you. So what I'm going to do here is... I thought it would be interesting to uh, and important to look at the three horoscopes side by side as individuals. Um, obviously, we don't have time to do anything except what's quite reductive. But here is Jung's horoscope. And for the purposes of, of the comparison, what I'm going to concentrate on is um, that, that the houses of a horoscope are symbolically speaking, what are the settings in which our story is growing and developing? And some of the settings in our story, the houses of the upper hemisphere of the horoscope, are very much about who we are and what we are doing in the outer world. And the lower hemispheres of the horoscope are very much about our subjective interior lives. So what I'm interested in for purposes of comparison is what is the nature of these people in terms of their capacity for uh, ardor, eros, and how do they come to each other to make agreements. And so there are several places that an astrologer looks for this in a chart. And the, uh, so one of the places that I look is when we've looked at this in Jung himself, here is the heartbeat of the story, the sun in the seventh house of partnership. So this is uh, someone who is going to be, the heart of the story is to work with. He also has Uranus in the seventh house, something in him in working with and in relationship 
is going to have to need to remain separate and autonomous. His Venus, his anima, we could reductively say, is in the sign Cancer, which means that his inner woman actually is very much probably how he first encounters as in a home and in a house and in a domestic situation, which is contained and protected and sweet and nourishing, nourishing and nurturing, and is in a very tight tangle with Mercury, how we read the world, how we frame the world, what we notice about the world, and how we organize our grasp of the world. So here we have, as part of his relational nature, bringing mind to relationship. And then we have here his Mars in Sagittarius in the 11th house. In his larger community, a metaphysician and a philosopher and a journeyer, a restless, on-the-path, journeying, looking for the truth. And then finally, the moon in Taurus, another example in the astrological language of something in its exaltation, uh, what we could say a voluptuous mother, and Anne can talk about this word voluptuous a little bit later, but a voluptuous mother in the arms of a shadow, Pluto. So, of course, there's plenty more to say about it. You know, as we talked about Lilith, here's Lilith. Why should I be second when I was created equal? The feminine that stands as an equal at the very uh, front of the chart. So we know just in a very brief snapshot, a man who is going to come to terms not only with his performance and productivity and success in the outer world, but relationship, partnering, ardor, and reflecting on it are going to be a very important part of the development of, and a very important dynamic in his story. When we look at Emma's chart, here is the sun and Venus in the dynamic, potent sign of Aries, a fire sign, at home. So here we have a powerhouse at home. The heartbeat of this story is, you know, I, I can't pretend to understand exactly what a well-run Swiss household looks like, but I have to believe that she was the chief executive officer of the house when I look at a chart like this. And that here she has in terms of, and here's Venus in the fifth house of where we are happy, where we have pleasure, where we have children, where we love the place where we bring ourselves to the sexual bed, where we bring ourselves to joy and creativity and, and expressiveness and a kind of willingness to not know how something's going to come out. Creativity, not in the sense of making things or producing things, but in the sense of heart opening to possibility. And so here is her Venus in the hot, fiery sign of Aries. So pretty hot for a contained Swiss culture person. She has South Node uh, in the seventh house of partnership. So we could say an instinct or an expectation that she will be partnered. And here is Mars in Cancer. So a, a, a devotion to um, a, a contained household. This is a very interesting connection between Emma and Jung. Her Mars at 11 Cancer, his Venus and Mercury at 13 and 17 Cancer. And I'll talk about that when we come to the comparison chart. And finally, her Scorpio rising, a passionate woman herself. A lot of heat, a lot of passion, a lot of dynamism, and a Leo moon. So her light, where the moon 
in the ancient world, they said about the moon, she doesn't burn herself. She carries the sun's light. And so the moon in the horoscope, what do we want to carry and reflect? So here is a moon in Leo holding and reflecting Jung's sun, nourishing and nurturing and holding and carrying any Leo sun, not just Jung's. And in terms of Tony, here we have this sun, the sun sign, the heart of the story in Virgo in the second house to discern life's rhythms and patterns and to bring understanding and benefit through, we could say, the harvesting and the critique of complex systems. Astrology is, is um, an example of a Virgoan kind of system. How do we account for the rhythms of nature? And how can we know them? And how can we know them, not just in terms of the expectable and repeatable, but the anomalous? What, surprise, what, what, what can we both come to count on, but what surprises us? She has a Pisces moon in the seventh house. So carrying the ocean, carrying the oceanic as a partner, the capacity to open and hold with empathy and sympathy, the emotional reality of other, not just capital O other, but personal other. So a love and a need, if we think of the moon as appetite and need, a love and need to be both giving in partnering and receiving in partnering. Here we have her Mars in Sagittarius in a powerful relationship with Jupiter, who of course was Zeus before he was Jupiter. So her animus, if we reduce Mars to that, but let's, let us say her mastery fused with the power and creativity and expansive quality of the, what, what we call the God energy, Zeus, but it's really how nature grows. And so here we have in this focused, dedicated, empathic woman, an enormous amount of drive towards metaphysics and philosophy. So we have this double image of discernment around systems and a kind of restless move towards creating territory for herself that has to do with mastering big ideas. And finally, she has Venus in Libra, and like Jung, has Venus, pleasure, relational capacity, in a very, very tight relationship with Mercury. So the ability to both be in relationship, but to frame and understand and be in dialogue in a relational dynamic. So... You know, that's a pretty fast roar through um, very basic personalities. But these are all very distinct, powerful, expressive, creative, ardent, relational people. Beautiful. Carol, I wonder if you can just, whatever works, kind of zoom in on each chart. Okay, so here we have Carl Jung. Sun in Leo, moon in Taurus, Aquarius rising. And we have this strong Venus-Mercury conjunction. Mars and Sagittarius. Here we have Emma, powerful Aries, Mercury and Pisces at the root, very intuitive. I, it, it struck me as I was working on these that I would really love to, I, I have not been able to find very good birth data for Jung's mother. Mm. But, but this, this, his powerful Taurus moon in the embrace of, 
of the shadow, the little bit I know biographically about his mother, her visions, her psychic ability, her um, night wandering is, is a, clearly a very formative part of him. And it, at some point, I'm going to take a, a harder look at his relationship, both with his father and his mother, astrologically. But here we have Emma, this powerful Aries sun and Venus and Aries ardent, you know, and sort of inside the construction of, of cultural life and Saturn and Taurus, the right thing, the right way, the first time for the right reasons, being conventional, being settled down, is um, a very, very dynamic, hot, feminine energy, but with a need and an admiration for a masculine that creates a, a sweet, safe household, her own inner masculine. So it's an interesting double image of Emma as both the chief executive officer of the household and the spiritual duty of containing and creating a safe place for her family. And then here we have Tony, son in Virgo in the second house to, to with focus and discipline and intention, bring uh, frameworks of, of discernment and a critical function to life processes and pattern making as a way of making value in the world this incredible capacity and need to be in an empathic, receptive, emotional, almost psychic relationship with other. And this restless metaphysician that lives inside her that is looking for the truth. She also, I don't want to pass lightly over this, Saturn, how I create structures of value and meaning in the world, in the sign Leo, sitting on her rising sign, how do I, from the depths, bring form and structure into the world? Not just how do I structure myself, but that, again, that's a pretty fast one. Thank you, Carol, so much. And I'm really struck by the Leo, Tony's Leo rising. Yes. Emma's Leo moon um, and Jung's Leo sun. And are you going to do the composite chart a little bit as well? I am. Okay. Great. If I can find it, hang on so here. Just, I'm struck really, I've known this, but just seeing you do this again, Jung's essay on synchronicity, you know, which has been published in all sorts of things. You can get the little book, Jung's book on synchronicity. It's not one of his best pieces of writing, but he does this, um, he does this study of astrology in that, in which he's exploring the um, composite charts, uh, or rather just what married couples, how often married couples have um, a moon and sun conjunct and that that's his kind of dive into synchronicity with astrology is exploring married couples sun and moon so um so to see him of course this is all drawn from his own stuff he and emma have this moon sun pairing yep. in leo yep all right so here is the comparison chart and this is posted on your website and i'll put it on my website too for people who want a closer look so it's the convention in astrology to, you have to assign a base chart. So Jung is the base chart. This second chart is, the, is Emma's chart. And this third chart is Tony's chart. So again, this is quite reductive, but for purposes of looking at the trio, one of the things I was so struck by is that not only is there, and I should have circled this, this incredible connection through the seventh house, these people are partners. 
a lot of uh, astrology is about will I will I marry and will I fall in love and um, and so the seventh house as a place in human experience is often reductively interpreted as marriage but it's any agreement that we make with another what are the limits of what it is that we will do what will we sign on the dotted line for that doesn't mean it's always conscious but it does mean it's a tango in which we both agree consciously and unconsciously to be limited in the presence of someone else's reality and that through projective identification we begin in the tangle with other to come to some kind of self-understanding and wholeness. So I'm, that was one of the first places that as I looked, as that not only are these three people in and of themselves as individual, relational people, but something is going to grow and develop for them through their relationship life. The other places that I'm very, very struck by is that here at the Midheaven, which is abbreviated astrologically MC for Mediacelli, is where we are visible and where we are public people and where we are seen. You know, from a yoga point of view, I think of this as the crown chakra and this is the root chakra, that this from a Qigong point of view, this is where heaven enters the byway, and this is where earth roots us, and that we are between heaven and earth expressing our dynamic of heaven and earth through our own individual practices. So here, Jung does have Lilith at the midheaven, the independent woman, that this program doesn't show that, but here is Emma's north node and rising sign at his midheaven. And here is Tony's restless, powerful, potent, creative masculine at Jung's midheaven. These women were midwifing and pushing him and moving his explorations, his restlessness, his that's not the truth, that's not the truth. Is this the truth? Is this the truth? that in their own natures as partners in agreement, conscious and unconscious, are pushing what is going to be his public, in a way, legacy, you know, of looking for something. And both of them are anchoring him at the root, not just home, not just making a home for him, but as a kind of psychic root, which is how I think about the IC. Part of this is generational. They're all born very close to each other, Jung, 1875, Emma, 1882, and Tony, 1888. But I'm very struck by this balancing act, both being rooted, having a root, having a place where it is that he is held, and that because he's at a place where he's being held, he's then able to be both pushed by them and push himself farther out into the explorations of, his, of not only his own nature, but his work in the world. So again, this is a very fast roar through this, but I think about my own tangle with how as a person in, a, in an agreement, how do I grow and develop my own nature outside the hairspray container of this is how this relationship is going to be, and that it wasn't it does not just me being sympathetic with Jung, but really having a lived sense still to this day, 
how do I come to terms with what is dynamic, unfolding, and unfinished in me, both in terms of my own responsibilities and my, the relationships as they unfold? So this is profound trio, and, um, and they, there's a kind of almost seamless connection between the three of them in terms of an agreement about how to move a great work forward, not just the great man, but a great work, and that the three of them participated in it psychically from my perspective, absolutely equally. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and that they really, just as you said, they were, they were all writing, they were all contributing, they were all seeing patients, yeah. you know, they really, it's profound. Yeah. So we do want to open it up to question and answer, but I want to go back and to you, if you will unmute yourself, because Anne sent us a quite wonderful translation of and musing around the word Freude, joy, pleasure, and volust, I'm sure I'm fracturing that pronunciation, of, of, the, of not just lust, and, but, but a meditation on pleasure as it appears in Jung's work in terms of his relationship, the dynamic of his explorations with the feminine. So Anne, if you will share with us. Yeah, I'll try, and once again, I'll try to hold it to two minutes. This whole section is filled with so many German words that are really swing between, do I mean pleasure? Do I mean lust? What is sexual? For example, the word Volust, and in German, W is pronounced as if it were a V, mm -hmm. is the same as the word voluptuous, which, of course, has a lot of connotations or judgments with it. So throughout this, and in that one sentence you pulled out, Carol, we are looking at an inner question of, oops, is this all right? Yes, I do love you, but I am married. And the way that that word, defroida, is that joy, is that pleasure? Are we looking at sexuality? For me, what this section was really pulling apart was also the whole question of the ethics of Western civilization. I sent you a photo, which many of you probably know, the famous one of Masaccio, where Adam and Eve are fleeing the garden with a look of horror. And of course, in most of them, God is pointing at Eve because she's, guilt, she's the guilty one. But that, that image as an archetype really overshadows, to my way of thinking, all of Western civilization, that Judeo-Christian image. And it certainly was a part of any European and male upbringing as well. So you were allowed as a white male to have affairs. But part of that package was guilt. Mm. It wasn't just that. And, and, and so I'm going to tell you a personal story here. I came within four weeks of marrying a Greek, spoke five languages, very, very cultured. And so his Greek mother-in-law was trying to train me on how to be a wife. And she said, it doesn't matter that they sleep, that they have other affairs, because you are the wife. You have the power as wife. Pay no attention to it. But at the same time, there was a lot of pain in that. This was preparation. This wasn't saying, it's so much fun. You're all going to live together, and it will be just like children. This, was, yeah. this pain is going to be there. Be prepared but you've got the power as a wife. Eventually, I married an Englishman. His mother married a German opera singer, 
And once again, at the end, she ran the house. She was an Emma completely. He lived upstairs with his mistress, who by that time also lived in the house. So that, that European, it's very powerful in Europe. We're talking the beginning of the 20th century. The part of the white male privilege was to have affairs. And the role of the wife was to kind of be the container and look the other way. So no matter how much one says, isn't that terrific, those two great women yeah. allowed this work to emerge, I think what we're not looking at is that really the whole ethos of Western civilization is being called into question because any ethos is going to be how do we contain the instincts of which sexuality is one of the primary instincts? How do we... Or, Anne, how do we refine them? You know, I mean, I think what we're trying to... T thank you so much for that. So powerful, both the personal and the translation. You know, I think we are talking, uh, certainly hope to be, about the ethos globally. And, and arguably, this is not just white male privilege. This is, pr this is yeah. male privilege. You know, I mean, this is cultural, worldwide. There's yeah. this question of you know, what position is the male physical body and the hetero male body and the ideas that come from the male brain? You know, obviously, I mean, we, our whole culture, thank God, is going through this in such deep and complex ways right now. But thank you for your personal experience of how it shows up as a young bride. And, and let me say, I don't, I don't mean in any way here to be putting that ethos just on the white privileged male all of us were participating in it, and I don't blame anyone. I just say, I think what's happening here is so radical that it's hard to even see first reading this chapter how radical the questions are that he's being put through. Yes, and what he's putting himself through. Yeah. Yeah. Thank so, you, Anne, so much. Thank you. Thank you. So other questions? We have, we've got a little bit of time here. Kathy. Was there pain in the household between these three roles? There was tremendous pain. Yes. You know, again, this went on for decades. I mean, I don't, I don't want to speak to the history too directly because I don't want to screw up dates and all that, but it went on for a very, very long time. So they sorted things through, but there was certainly an enormous amount of pain. I mean, Tony began coming to Sunday dinners, I think, every Sunday for a very long time. But there was always a tension, you know, I mean, a lot of the children resented her or hated her. Emma tolerated it. They worked together. There was just a constant processing of this dynamic and the work that was coming from it. You know, Jung loved Emma very, very, very deeply. And so I don't want to just characterize her as being the one that held the household. There was tremendous love and respect there. But, you know, one can imagine, I mean, this was an incredibly complicated dynamic for all of the specific reasons it would be painful. No, you know, I want to add to that and also uh, kind of follow on to, to your point, Anne, about, about the, the culture and the civilization that we created. I, I've been teaching a course called Dangerous Women and looking at the horoscopes of, of women in all different dynamics. And... Um, the New York Times, I'm sure some of you may be aware, the New York Times for about the past two years has decided to publish the obituaries of notable women who went unremarked and unregarded. And so I am building a very large file of 
of horoscopes, doing the homework, when were they born, what, what is the anecdotal evidence, are there, are there biographical, um, is there biographical information that I can find about them? And that, that we, to very much to this point, we are all still living with, what were the contributions that women made that went unremarked? or unregarded that, that are, I, I think about the movie Hidden Figures that as an example of the incredible contributions that have been made that are now beginning to see the light of day. And to Anne's point, uh, Jung bringing himself to this moment and the, the incredible personal emotional toll in a way it took on all three of them on what it cost them to do this, not just what they gave, but what, what it cost is um, you can feel this in the, in the anguish of his writing. And it's why I am reliant on Satya about the biographies, because I know less about the stories of these women, except from um, an, a kind of abstract astrological gloss, we could say. But what is very clear to me is the dynamics between the three of them were transformative for all three of them. The fact that the culture didn't allow them to exist in some other way, their own cultural inhibitions, as well as the larger cultural inhibitions, that the women in some ways were not credited for it. And I, I think that's all there for us to see too. I'm really struck again, which I did not know that Emma and Tony had a son. I mean, a um- Moon rising conjunction, is that right? Yeah. Just that, yeah. No, I mean, there's a lot of juice there. Very curious. You would expect that. You would expect that, you know, because he, he was potent, and they, they weren't, um, to use his word, they were not bloodless maidens. Guru Hari? I just wanted to mention, you know, the yin feeds the yang. And so what I'm hearing on this is really the red book, and we, you said it before, and all Jung's work, it, it couldn't happen without the women because they have the essence. And all he was is like a manifesting microphone, put it in words, articulate it, make it scientific, make it rational. But where this discussion is going, which I like, is the core essence of women. And that's what's required. You know, it's like the seed essence. And so I just want to put that in. You know, that's the... the um, Taoist concept, we all think yang is important, you know, going out, protecting and moving and doing, and we need that energy, but it has no power without yin. Yeah. And so I just wanted to kind of share that because I think it's really uh, what's coming to light here is the importance of women to feed and nurture and balance the equation. I think this would just... Thank you. I mean, it's really... You know, I, I feel so fortunate to have been invited into um, the Chinese culture. And granted, it's an esoteric China, not a modern China, but to have been fortunate enough to have been invited into the esoteric Asian sensibility that has given my own language and my my own sense of what is trying to work in the world. You know, our one of my Chinese teachers says, if you think of yang as, and, and yin, yang is energy and yin is form, says yang without yin is a ghost, yin without yang is a corpse. And that, um, that, that in our own natures, the constant play, the seasonal play, 
the yearly play of light and dark, you know, is um, we're, we're always in a process with this and that, that studying the Red Book gives us um, a quite amazing look at the way a Western sensibility wrestling with, with this, um, how, to, how to be in the world. Yeah, and a, and a Western male sensibility. I mean, again, yeah. we're probably going to wrap up here, but I, but I yeah. really appreciate that comment. And I, I really grew up kind of reading a lot of Eastern texts. Again, I've said a lot of this stuff, but my own coming to this is through Jung and then an enormous amount of breaking it down as a young woman and having to really come to terms with all of the stories of the feminine being the yin or the feminine being the muse for the masculine who then rationalizes it or puts it out into the world. For me, while I understand that frame, I start to like fold and, and kind of, I don't know, like twitch when, I, when it's just entirely associated with genders because it puts me in the position of being the muse instead of the presenter. Mm -hmm. And of course, I know the complexity of this. I mean, we could go over it endlessly, but I really had to detox myself from wanting to be a muse for an extraordinary man because that was, those were the stories I was raised on. Mm -hmm. um, it was either being Emma, who I did not want to be, or being Tony. And for me, the story of Tony was like, okay, cool. You know, I'll be the respected mind, even though I have to be in the background. I would rather have been Tony. It took me forever to think, wait, I could be young, right? Yeah. I couldn't project until I detoxed myself from the trillions of images of the feminine as patriarchy has embodied her. I couldn't put my own self into the role of the actor, of the primary actor, because the primary actor has been male and older for almost all of human history as it's been recorded. That's what I think we're starting to change, but it forces us to alter all of the patriarchal interpretations of these stories over time, which is, it, it's like, could it all be bullshit? Could it all be from a male psyche? Yes. <laughs> you know. And how could that be true? But it doesn't, I mean, I don't mean to throw the baby out with the bathwater again, it's not bullshit, but to put, to understand this comes from male interpretations. And so I don't want to just be in then, obviously. I want to be all of it in my own skin and be yes. able to do all of this androgynously in whatever yeah. form. Yeah. And again, I highly yeah. doubt you and I are going to argue on this, Guru Hari. I just wanted to put it... No, no. I Actually, I think you hit it because I've been contemplating what is the future? It is androgyny. What is that androgyny? And it's just what you said. Yeah, it's the agency. But it's also like I'm a male. I have to do the same thing you're doing, but from a... You know what I mean? So I think uh, you're, you're clarifying for, I've really been contemplating the Sequarian age and androgyny and what, what is the meaning of that? So I think we're getting a taste of it. <laughs> Thank you. It's the core, most important thing. That's why I could talk for 30 minutes without stopping to all of you at the beginning and we're still in it because it's... Yeah. You know. <laughs> Patrick, can I say one word? One of the things that structure did was keep the man still a boy. So yeah. one of the things, he, he's there with a the wife and the mistress, but he, the, the guilt is about remaining a boy, Absolutely. remaining a male adolescent. So one of the things asked of the male or the opportunity is his own spiritual maturity. That's everything, Anne. We could, again, talk for six hours about that. Very briefly, Jung wrote an essay called On the American Man or something like that. People want to look it up that speaks to that, you know, it's exactly that. And, and the tyranny of their wives, the tyranny of their wives then, because 
they infantilize their wives so completely that their wives turn into tyrants in their lives because nobody then is mature and everyone's driving each other crazy. You know, again, projective identification, all this. Oh, it's too much. Claudia. <laughs> I just have one word that I want to thank. I don't know who it might be Carol for, and that's tangle. I'm just really, um, it's kind of interesting. We're in the tangle of spring, but just that there is so much to be learned from the tangles we find ourselves in or have found ourselves in. And it's so often, you know, what I've wanted to do is cut and slash my way out of it, right? Rather than see how that tangle, uh, what that brought to me in my own development. It's what's, what's it showing us? What's it showing us? Yeah. yeah. All right. To be continued. Thank Namaste. you, everybody. Thank you. Next week, we're going to get more into the masculine again next week. So uh, we welcome right. your presence. Bye-bye. Thanks, Satya. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, all. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.